Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by State Farm. As you know, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, and watch again for the little details, the other things movies don't have that keep us coming back. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have the same little details we all appreciate. They make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight, no gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. It's a no-brainer. Get out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. Meanwhile, World Central Kitchen's relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us. And you can help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. We're trying to raise $250,000 this month. It's ambitious, but if you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen. It's a charitable donation. Once again, theringer.com slash WCK. I could be the walrus. I'd still have to bum rides off people. Ferris Bueller's Day Off coming up next. Paramount Pictures presents a new film by John Hughes, starring Matthew Broderick. Yeah, that's me. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He gives good kids bad ideas. He's such a sweetie. The story of one man's struggle to take it easy. He's a righteous dude. Rated PG-13. Now playing at a theater near you. I can't believe it took this long to do Ferris Bueller's Day Off. In the running for best comedy of the 1980s. In the running for most rewatchable. In the running for most timeless. My kids love this movie. I feel like future kids will love this movie. Generations ahead of themselves will love this movie. It's weirdly timeless. The more I watch it, though, Chris Ryan, we'll start with you. Is this a Cameron movie or a Ferris movie? (laughs) That's the big question, man, right? Like in the age of internet uh, sleuthing and theorizing... I think that we've analyzed this movie for enough decades now that we've come around to it being Cameron's movie. And there are some people who push that idea and the reading of this movie all the way out to basically, there's a big theory online of that this is Cameron's fight club, you know, that Ferris is a a figment of Cameron's imagination. But um, I don't think that I watched the movie. I don't think the reason the movie is timeless is because of Cameron. I think it's because of Ferris. I feel like it's the equivalent of, watching the MJ doc and being like, was that a Scotty Pippen movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, yeah, he becomes more interesting the more times you watch it. It's actually pretty accurate because then Jerry Krause is kind of Rooney there, right? <laughs> right, true. Uh, Sean, what's your take? Cameron movie or Ferris movie? Well, it's. I think it's definitely a Ferris movie, but walking away from it again, I realized that everybody wants to be Ferris and everybody, I don't know about everybody, but most people relate to Cameron. And... That's really, it's an unusual case where usually you identify with the hero of your movie. And in this case, the hero is so untouchable and so great at everything and so perfect. And you have another character in the movie who's observing how perfect the the lead is. And that's the guy who makes the most sense to us when we watch it. So I think it's definitely Ferris's movie. But I, the more the more times I watch it, the more I love it for Cameron. 
Yeah, I do think one of the things it taps into is in high school, there's always those couple people, couple of people that just have it going and they're just on a different plane than people. And in high school, everyone's so awkward and trying to figure themselves out and making all the wrong choices and and they just don't know who they are yet. And they look at that person who just has it all figured out. Kind of there's there's some envy, but just also kind of awe, which I think Cameron straddles that line for I to me this is I back to the MJ Pippen analogy we're thinking about a lot of them about them lately because this documentary started hey, Ferris is MJ and, and and Cameron's Pippen but they do need each other and you do need the 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 give and, and take of the of the friendship and I think when I first saw this it was so clearly a Ferris movie and the more you watch it you realize oh it's actually about those two people which I think is what John Hughes wanted Chris they, the 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 Cameron character is a culmination of five years of John Hughes teen movies, yeah. him trying to get this character correct. And then I feel like he finally did. Yeah, it's kind of an extension of the Anthony Michael Hall character in Breakfast Club. Uh, this guy, I mean, they they share some similar plot points, even with the sort of aborted suicide attempt, if that's really what that is. Um, but that kind of uh, pensive anxiety. And I think even if you look at Alan Ruck and you look at John Hughes, like they share a lot of physical similarities the the Detroit Red Wings jersey is an extension of John Hughes's Detroit fandom. So yeah, I think that when you watch this movie, it's like Ferris Bueller is to high schoolers as Indiana Jones is to archaeologists. Like it, it would be very hard to find someone like that. I think that a lot of people modeled themselves off of that or tried to be that kind of person who could pass through all the different groups. But the idea of having a, a guy who's like got impeccable music taste, absolute smoke show girlfriend is a hacker and also can like just play everybody like an orchestra. I don't know if I knew anybody like that in high school, even though all of my friends and I like our high school yearbook quotes would suggest that we all thought we were that. It's like you, right. you just didn't know anybody like that. And it's funny how many high school movies and even college movies have tried to do the Ferris Bueller character basically. And it never goes correctly. And a lot of times it goes horribly. I mean, they even made a TV series based on the movie four years later and that was bad. And that's a show that like, it, you know, could have worked potentially, but I think, you know, Broderick's so good in this and I have a lot of good Broderick research coming up later, but uh, this was one of those after this movie, you just, you're buying all the stock and you feel like, uh, what happens with this guy next. And he's had a really good career, but you know, he had this tragic car accident about a year and a half after they make this movie with Jennifer Grey, who he was dating real life. Who's also in this movie in Ireland. And it did seem like it set him back. Like, even if you look at the IMDB, he goes from, he's going to have this kind of like Michael J. Fox kind of trajectory. Uh, at least he's on that. And then the, the choices start getting a little, a little more eclectic and he never really tries to be like the A-list hero in a movie again. It's all, he even says it. He has a quote later when he's talking about this movie, just about where he says, uh, hold on, I got to find it. It eclipsed everything. I should admit and to some degree, it still does. I acquired fame by playing the coolest kid who ever lived. Now the only roles I can seem to get are bleak, insecure men. I do find almost every character I play quite interesting, though. What do you think of that, Sean? It's a, an amazing observation by him. If you look at the movies that he makes, within 
10 years, he's in the cable guy, basically just playing Cameron. And yeah. he ha- he has this, his persona morphs on screen so quickly. It's so strange how maybe originally he didn't want to be the smooth, slick guy who can do it all, all the time in the 80s because he would have felt pigeonholed. But somehow he completely inverted his whole on-screen persona over the course of 10 years, which is amazing. But that said, he does make a lot of really good movies. I mean, they're not exactly Ferris Bueller style movies, but he's in Glory and he's in The Freshman and he's in movies like Election and later in his career. Like he does have a great career. He just doesn't have that like this guy's Paul Newman kind of career that we thought we were going to get from him. Yeah, and he's become an underrated, underrated '80s guy too. I feel like you know, for sure. I think some people have ascended from the '80s, and other people, you know, it's just like, oh, he's in Ferris. But War Games was a massive movie too. You know, he had some major hits. Sorry, Chris. No, I was just going to say that in a weird way, I feel like Tom Hanks had the ideal version of Matthew Broderick's adult career. You know, you like there, you could see Matthew Broderick in those rom coms. You could see Matthew Broderick in punchline even you know what i mean like you could have seen him in a lot of those earlier tom hanks movies and and maybe even having i mean i don't know that matthew broderick ever projected the ability to do like saving private ryan kind of movies but we don't really know because i think ultimately this dude is just like i like to be in neil simon plays and live in new york with my wife and and kind of have a low-key existence are you saying he got market corrected by tom hanks a little bit i i still feel like the accident set him back in a lot of ways because I think that was so traumatic. Two people died. It wasn't wasn't a drunk driving thing or anything. He was in Ireland. And, um, you know, I, I think it had a profound effect probably on what kind of choices he wanted to make. He, we're talking about him in the 80s, though. Two casting what-ifs that don't have anything to do with this movie. I didn't even know this until I started research. Actually, three. He was the first choice to play Alex P. Keaton in Family Ties. Turned it down. Which... It's weird because Back to the Future is all about sliding doors and that kind of stuff. But if Matthew Broderick's in Family Ties, does that mean he's then in Back to the Future and Michael J. Fox is Ferris Bueller? Like, I, I don't know how all that shakes out. He was also cast in The Flamingo Kid, but he dropped out and that became Matt Dillon's breakout role. And now whether Matt Dillon would have broken out anyway, I'm assuming that would have happened. Um, the other one that was shocking he turned down the role of Johnny Utah in Point Break, and it went to Keanu. What? Yeah. Well, that that doesn't wow. make sense. That, yeah. that wouldn't have worked. He's yeah. too slight and too short, and I feel like you needed an athlete. You needed a quarterback for that role, and Matthew yeah, Broderick maybe. is not a quarterback. Yeah, Matthew Broderick. How tall is Drew Brees? Like, wh- how, like I don't even know. <laughs> We'd really be pushing it in terms of short QBs there. Well, he got, he got of, hurt sort of in Tua. the... Yeah, it's Tua. <laughs> He got injured in the running sequence at the end. Yeah. They they, 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 they filmed yeah. the movie out of sequence. He was re- he did the running scene before they did the twist and shout Donkashe scene. And uh and he had like a like a screwed up knee. So he couldn't even handle that. I don't think point break would have worked. Uh Cameron, going back to that for a second, Hughes on teenagers, Cameron has that quote where he says, it's ridiculous being afraid, worried about everything, wishing I was dead, all that shit. I'm tired of it. That was the best day of my life. I'm going to miss you guys next year. That was like Cameron kind of embracing what happened during the day. What do you think Hughes, when he was in high school, my guess would be he was kind of a cross between Anthony Michael Hall's Breakfast Club character and Cameron in a lot of ways. Cause it seemed he did his best writing for those guys. Right. But what do you, what do you think? Do you think that was him? It was, he definitely wasn't Bender and Ferris. You know what I mean? I don't think he had 
that crazy rebellious streak. I mean, when you when you hear about how prodigious and fast he was as a writer, it just feels like the kind of guy who spent a lot of time observing people, writing stories in his head, and and kind of keeping to himself. So I think that's why those characters specifically seem to sing because they feel so true to him. What do you think, Sean? He has this really fascinating combination in his writing of of sweetness and sarcasm and sort of like a every once in a while he pulls out a dagger in his writing. And so, I mean, he definitely feels like more of a Cameron, but I, you, you, you know, it's a, such a cliche to say like he is a blend of all of his characters from The Breakfast Club, but he's totally iterating on that. And you guys talked about this on the sh- on the Breakfast Club episode of the show. But it, he's a rare person who seems to be able to channel female characters pretty well nerds jocks you know loner rebel types he understands the dynamic between parents and children really well between you know power and the powerless like teachers and students like he is just really good at relationships and the relationship between cameron and ferris in this movie is just really deep it just really does feel like of the kind of friendship that you have in your life especially if you're a guy I just have friendships like this. And in some of those friendships, I'm the Ferris and someone else is a Cameron. And some of them, I'm the Cameron and someone else is the Ferris. Like, it's just very perceptive and persuasive about how people connect to one another. So I think he's just got a little bit of all of his characters in him. Yeah, that part when uh, when they're doing the George Peterson phone call and then Cameron goes too far <laughs> and Brett Ferris kicks him. And they hang up and, and Cameron's like genuinely wounded Ferris. Yeah. Him. He's like, you kicked me. He's like, you deserved it. He's like, yeah, but you, and he makes him apologize. And then there's a beat and Ferris is like, you did screw up though. Right. I mean, not that it was completely your fault. Why? Well, to fix the situation, I'm going to have to ask you for a small favor. It's just such a good friendship, you know, minute that's so realistic. It's the projection of backstory without it being there, right? It's like being able to show, here's what these guys are like all the time without having to go through, we've known each other since third grade and you remember at camp one time and all that stuff. It's like, it's really perfect. So Alan Ruck is so good as Cameron that he just kind of became Cameron. And, you know, he, he ends up on Spin City a few years later, like he definitely, you know, he was almost 30 when he made this movie. And then, uh, you know, he, sometimes these roles are so distinct. You just can't see the person as anything else. He's, he's been very diplomatic about how awesome it was for his career, all that stuff. But when he, I remember when he popped up on spin city with Michael J. Fox in the mid nineties, just being like, Cameron, there he is. I had, the, I had that not experience even, with, not with even knowing speed. his name. Yeah. But oh, that's when right. I saw that's speed, another one. I was like, what the hell is Cameron doing on this bus? It's so yeah. disorienting. It's only now um, that he's kind of sort of started to get an, a, a new character that he's more associated with, with Connor from Succession. Um, best supporting actor for 86. What's the just list? I give, didn't look back. I'm just going <laughs> to give it to you. Michael Caine won for Hannah and her sisters. Okay. Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe for Platoon. Barnes! <laughs> Den- Dennis Hooper for Hoosiers. Denhelm Elliott for Room of the View. Pretty stacked that category. Was, that was, might have been the Alan Ruck would spot, you go, though. Bill, would you go Hopper here. there? To win it? Yeah. 
I, that Michael Caine, that was that that was a career achievement Oscar, right? That was he'd been around for a while. He had never actually gotten over the hump, and everybody was like, "Here's an Oscar." Well, he's doing like a Woody Allen impression in the movie, so it's kind of a. But he did he won another Lifetime Achievement Oscar like 25 years later for right. Cider House Rules. So I, you know, I don't know. That's a weird one. It would be cool if but, Alan Ruck was nominated. Movies like this never get nominated. It's not shocking that he wasn't nominated. I guess a rare exception is I feel like a year or two later. Kevin Klein wins in this category for a fish called Wanda, which was is one of the very, very precious few straight comedy Oscar wins for an actor. Chris, do you feel like this is the last pure 80s movie? Because it's 86. It comes out in the summer. We still have a couple classics after it. Like Can't Buy Me Love is 87. Um I, I think Pretty in Pink comes out right around the same time, but it's, it's this the, year, the couple, right? I think I think, yeah. Yeah. The whole concept of an 80s movie is starting to shift by by now. And this is like it perfected the 80s movie. And now we're starting to move into yeah, a different and, realm. And I think and that, th- thrillers and action movies are starting to take over summer. You know what I mean? And, and you know, John Hughes himself leaves high school. He goes off to do Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, I think, is the next movie he directs. He does Uncle Buck. So, yeah, I think that in some ways it's the end of an era. and It's like it's probably the defining one. It's interesting that we've done a few of these high school movies. We did we did Breakfast Club. This is the one that I think is aged the best. And this is the one that when I put it on feels as fresh as it did back then, maybe because so little of it actually takes place in high school. And especially the first 40 minutes are pretty unassailable, like. I watched with my son last night who loves this movie and I think identifies with Ferris in a couple of different ways, <laughs> but uh, he's just so delighted by all of it. Like, like when, when, uh, when they're driving in the Ferrari and the parking attendants pick it up and, and that movie really until they, they go to Abe Froman and they get to lunch, like everything up to that point is, is perfect. It's it's like honestly watching a perfect game all the way even at the Wrigley Field the baseball game, the last forty minutes I think shifts a little bit. It's not bad, but I, I just think the first half of the movie I do feel like is a little bit better. It's it's funnier than the than the second half of the movie. Did you guys agree with that or no? Yeah, I feel like when you asked us to do this, Chris and I immediately were super excited about it, and then as soon as I started thinking about it, I got a little bit nervous because. Not because I was afraid the movie wasn't going to hold up or anything. I knew it would. I've seen it. This this is definitely on the short list of movies I've seen more than any other movie. But the movie is like um, like a really great slice of pizza, or like like uh, like holing out when you like a chip from fifty yards away. Like it's just the feeling that it gives you is so perfect and indescribable. That it's not like The Godfather where it's like we have this entire history of movies to break down. It's about the mafia and family and these big themes and this incredible actors and filmmakers. It's like this is a very closed system of perfection and it feels completely unreplicable. And the reason it works is, is a little hard for me to conjure, honestly. Like it's a little hard to say why does this 35 years later still work really well on Ben Simmons as well as Bill Simmons. It's just, it's a very unique right time, right place, right people, right idea, right execution thing. And the idea of trying to make a TV series out of it or a sequel or all the other stuff we'll talk about is is obviously such a fool's errand because there is no way they were ever going to be able to recapture this specific kind of magic. I think part of it, 
I, I definitely agree with you, Bill, that the there it loses a little bit of its luster in the second half, and and that um it what essentially happens is that Hughes has like a dry run for home alone when when Rooney goes to the house. And it's I, I forgot that it was that much Rudy getting his ass kicked by <laughs> different parts of that house before um before I watched it again recently. But I think one of the reasons why it kind of has that quality that Sean's talking about, like where it lives in this perfect kind of little snow globe of its own of its own reality, is because it's so explicitly almost a philosophy movie. Like Broderick told a writer um who wrote a book about Hughes, he he once said that. To John Ferris Bueller is more than a person. He's an attitude and a way of life and a leader of men. And it's like that it's the fact that it almost is self-aware of the fact that Ferris Bueller will go on to become like an idea more than a character, I think is why it has kind of it's why your your son can watch it and enjoy it as much as we did when we were kids. Well, it also has catnip for a 12 and a half year old kid where the whole movie is about this kid in high school outwitting his parents and his teenagers, which yeah. that I, his teachers, that's always going to work in a movie. I, I think one of the other reasons that I was just so happy watching it last night, and this goes for other programming too, during the quarantine where we're all stuck inside and, you know, like my wife's been watching below deck, just ripping through the entire series and, 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 you know, it's fine, but she loves it. And she's just like, I get to be on a boat. I'm outdoors. <laughs> like it's everything is white and yeah. happy and I get to pull up to different locations around and it's just like, and we're trapped in the house. Um, and I felt like one of the things I love about Ferris is it's just outdoors. It's happy. Um, he, he, every scene from as soon as he, you know, he showers, he's outside in the pool, have a nice tea. He's there. They're driving in the Ferrari with the top down. They're in Chicago it's a great Chicago movie too. And that that's a city that when you're there on the right weekend is the best city in the world. You're just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe people don't live here. You're there in the wrong weekend. It's the worst. This movie captures Chicago. I think about as well as anything. Bill, what's it, what's, what, what is it? It's a sundress weather in, in Boston. Like the first hot, the first warm weekend in Boston, that first, like when spring finally hits, right? Yeah. Yes. Uh, that that that's like to me that's like what they hit in this movie where it's like how can I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this you know it's like that that definitely happens still and it's you're right it, it, that hit me yesterday watching it where it was you know it's kind of nice outside and I was just like I'm not I'm not allowed to go anywhere <laughs> I can't, certainly can't go to the Art Institute of Chicago I went to Chicago in mid-February for the all-star game and it was one degree <laughs> not uh not exactly put putting the top down in the ferrari driving around exploring how awesome the city is weather but that's the thing about chicago it's the most hit or miss weather city in the planet go ahead sean i'm sorry no i was just gonna say that it's so malleable though too like it's also a suburban paradise movie you know the house that ferris lives in and his parents and the tranquility of their lifestyle and the fact that he's trying to upend that at all times then you go into the big city i mean the movie itself chris you said it was it it's become kind of an idea. And it's so funny if you read some of the deeper kind of more eggheaded criticism about this movie, you've got like these different parties that are trying to take ownership of Ferris. You know, you have like libertarian, more conservative politicians who are like, this is a representation of the American dream and true freedom. And then you've got the sort of like more rebellious loner types who are like, you can take power into your own hands if you really want it. And the movie is maybe not necessarily worthy of that kind of analysis, 
but it's he he can be kind of everything to viewers which is he's a suburban kid he's a city dweller he's a sports fan he's an esthete you know he loves cool cars he's got a hot girlfriend like he kind of has all of the things that people can project onto their lives which is another reason i think it's totally enduring he's a righteous dude he's a righteous dude and a pantheon 80s girlfriend which we'll get into uh (laughs) later later in the pod i normally i would do this in unanswerable questions but it's such a crucial piece of this movie i feel like we have to do it now i did this in a mailbag in 2009 uh, basically the question is how did they do everything in eight hours? So here's the timeline. Ferris and Cameron, they don't pick up Sloan from school. It's somewhere between 930 and 1015. So let's give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll say 945. It seems like they lived, I'm going to say 25 minutes from downtown Chicago because they're definitely there on the highway. We see some, you know, it's going to take a while. You get in the city, you, get, you know, there's some traffic. And we know that they returned home just before six because Sloan looks at her watch at that the last scene that we see Sloan. So that means in the span of slightly less than eight hours, they drove all the way to Chicago. They dropped off the car at the parking garage. They visited the top of the Sears Tower. They went to the stock market. <laughs> they went to the Museum of Art long enough to look at a whole bunch of stuff and for Cameron to have an epiphany about life. They cabbed over to the French restaurant and stole a noon reservation for Abe Perlman <laughs> and then ate at his table and then somehow ended up at Wrigley Field uh, and attended an afternoon Cubs game long enough for the pizza guy to tell Ed Rooney it was the third inning. We also saw Ferris catch a foul ball. So... I, the whole lunch getting to Wrigley in time, that would have had to be a 2 p.m. afternoon game. I don't, they wouldn't have been able to get there by 1. 2 p.m. afternoon game is a little odd. But then they're at the, at the baseball game. You have to get in. You got to buy tickets. You're leaving. Now you got to cab back. They go back to downtown Chicago. They take part in a parade where Ferris just climbs on the, on the float and sings two songs completely unrehearsed. Then they go back. They get the car. They drive all the way back to to wherever Cameron lives. They spend a half hour trying to take the miles off the car, setting that up, and then putting it backwards. <laughs> the car then goes out of the garage and crashes to its uh, unfortunate death. They hang out with Cameron longer. Ferris walks Sloan home and then sprints back to his house in time to make it for dinner. Chris, could that realistically have all happened in eight hours and 15 minutes? No. Have you ever been in parade traffic? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Dude, that was like, parade traffic is the worst. It's like every street in the city is somehow now like completely jam-packed and you've got a million drunk people walking around. Sean? <laughs> no, but it's one of those questions that makes me think maybe the movie is a fantasy. Maybe it is all a dream. You know, maybe it yeah. is a manifestation of... Alan Ruck's anxiety, you know, and what he really wants to see in the world, but he can't accomplish because it is completely impossible. Also, I just want to imagine and mention this at the time, like leaving Chicago and going back to the suburbs anytime after three is an hour. That's yeah. like, if you're ever flying out of Chicago in the late afternoon, you bet you have to like add an extra 40 minutes to the trip. But, uh, I it's not like going was, into Wrigley is like dipping into a 7-Eleven. I mean, it takes a little <laughs> bit of time to get into a fucking baseball game. I challenged everyone in 2009 to 
to, I was like, all right, three high school or college people, just try to reenact this and see if you can do this in eight hours. I don't think anyone pulled it off. If they did, I didn't see it. But I love uh, the idea of you challenging people, like like in yeah. the Coliseum to go to battle, to go to a Cubs game. It's an incredible, you know incredible bit. It's 2020. I'm going to challenge them again once the <laughs> pandemic is done. As soon as we're out of their house and the and the quarantine is over, uh, I, I, I do wonder to do whether this. or not rideshare makes this movie completely obsolete, though, because you don't have to take the Ferrari. Good point. Good point. They couldn't take care of its crappy car. Uh, there's so much stuff to cover in the categories. I want to get to it, but we just should mention quick: six million dollar budget made 70 million. I felt like you could have told me this movie made 400 million. I would have believed it, right? If or you know, that it was the number one movie of 1986. I would have been like, okay. Uh, largely positive reviews. Roger Ebert on the comeback trail. Uh, really, <laughs> really a making a run. Three <laughs> out of four stars. Called it, quote, one of the most innocent movies in a long time. And, quote, a sweet, warm-hearted comedy. Gene Siskel did not like the movie. And kind of it, it kind of turned it into Andy Greenwald, True Detective Season 2. Like, just doubled... <laughs> Doubled and tripled down on all the things that were wrong with it from a Chicago standpoint and just wouldn't waver. And Ebert and Cisco, it's one of the best arguments they've had. And what's interesting is Roper, who took over for Cisco, it's his favorite movie of all time, Ferris Bueller. So I don't know, I don't know what happened with Gene Cisco. I think the Chicago stuff was just he was too hardcore Chicago and he was finding all these different faults in it. Couldn't get past it. Hating Ferris Bueller is a great zag though. It's Makes me because I always felt like I was on the same. I was more aligned with Cisco than Ebert with their opinions. Like Cisco yeah. loved Saturday Night Fever so much, he bought the the Tony jumpsuit in some auction. Like I was like, that's my guy. If I had to pick between these two in a fight, but then him not liking Ferris, now I don't know what to think. We're gonna take a break and then uh, we're gonna go through just a copious amount of categories. We hope you've been enjoying Brilliant Sound your way on Sonos. Every Sonos speaker designed from the inside out for incredibly detailed sound and deep bass, then fine-tuned by Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists. TruePlay puts the speaker tuning capability of the recording pros in the palm of your hands and optimizes the sound for the unique acoustics of the room. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services, control the sound through the app with your voice, Apple AirPlay 2, and more. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. Start with one speaker, connect more over Wi-Fi. Whenever you're ready, you can connect your TV or turntable. Listen to everything you love. I have Sonos all over the place in my house. My favorite is, is I call it the egg. It doesn't look like an egg, but it's the, it's the move, it's called. But you can hook that up next to the TV. I like watching basketball games when basketball comes back. Just put a little podcast or some music on, on the move and you're ready to go. Uh, go to Sonos.com. To learn more and learn more about stuff like the speech enhancement feature um, and how you can set up the perfect sound experience for you. Back to the pod. Okay, most rewatchable scene. My winner for this is I'm going to break rewatchables tradition for the first time in 110 episodes. How many? But I'm going to give you all the nominees. And then if you guys want to add some after that, you can go right ahead. The first one is when the parents leave and he looks at the camera and he goes, they bought it. They bought it. Incredible. One of the worst performances of my career and they never doubted it for a second. It's an incredible moment. It leads to him talking to camera, which really never works ever. 
I, it, it, it's worked less than 15 times in the history of movies of the person narrating to the audience and he's doing it and he's got so many great things in there like the if I go for 10 sick days I'm gonna have to barf up a lung uh, <laughs> he does the faking out the parents list you fake a stomach cramp and when you're bent over moaning and wailing you lick your palms it's a little childish and stupid but then so is high school he does the lick your palms. He's giving advice. He does the look, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you'll miss it, which is the theme of the movie. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. He does the whole John Lennon Beatles thing, the walrus. And if I could be the walrus, I'd still bum rides off of people. And then it cuts right to Ben Stein in class and Christy Swanson. Um, he's sick. My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. Young Christy Swanson, looking great. Yeah. And that whole Ben Stein scene, it's a great run. And and if you're watching it, you're just like, I'm in. What happens next? Where do we, Where are we going now? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? I, I was going to do that on what stage the best, but it's hard to, Chris is closer to my age than Sean is. It's hard to overstate how many Ben Stein impressions there were in high school and college after this movie. I mean, it was like probably one of the most omnipresent over in a Bueller, Bueller, voodoo economics, voo, something do like just <laughs> people doing that. And anytime you had a boring teacher or somebody that sucked, you would just start doing Ben Stein in this movie. It's, it, the shadow of Ben Stein is one of the biggest shadows we had. Uh, next one for rewatchable. Cameron outside his house debating whether to leave or not. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, uh, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. With, I'll go. Shit. It's it's just un, an unbelievable Alan Ruck where he's like he'll keep calling and he'll keep calling like he's talking he'll to himself. Calling me, he'll keep calling, <laughs> calling me. He's so mad that he leaves, and then we see him stomp back into the car. The camera angle doesn't change. She starts punching the car. It's really great, and, and it makes you wonder: like, is this guy actually an unhinged lunatic, or what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that happened. that's up there for me. I love that one. Sean, I feel like Cameron, I, I I feel like you're holding back on your love for Cameron in this movie. This feels like it might be like a top eight or nine character for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't want to give away too much about myself. I think it's a little bit self-incriminating to be like, I really, really love and respect Cameron. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I mean, that scene in particular, I can I can relate to. I think a lot of I think anybody who's like trying to keep it together, but pretty coiled. Um, can really relate to to Cameron a lot. And that scene is like, that's the perfect example of when you have that friend who's pushing you all the time, who you know is going to make you have a good time, but who you know might also get you into a shitload of trouble. And you're if you live your life afraid of trouble, then he represents something really scary. And I don't know, Ruck is like, is just incredible. And I'm so glad Ruck is so old. You mentioned that he's 29. It's much better. Like if Ruck was young, it would feel, um, it would feel like little brothery and instead, they feel like they're on a level playing field. And so I, I love how even they feel, even though Ruck is so sc- almost scared of his best friend. 
And they had, Broderick and Ruck had done stuff together before. They had done plays and, and other work together. So you kind of really do get the sense that they have a relationship. It's pretty palpable. It's like when I call Chris about, it's time, today we're doing the cruising rewatchables. <laughs> And Chris is just me. in his car in the office. Me. I'm calling. Like, Fuck it. Bring it Fuck up it, Pacino. It. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to put the bandana in his back pocket. He'll keep calling me. <laughs> the blue one. The uh, next rewatchable scene, Ferris picking up Sloan in the Ferrari. Uh, the audacity of this. I, I like this as a rewatchable more because so many things annoy me. Like that Rooney's... 20 feet away. doesn't realize it's Ferris. Ferris is wearing an overcoat. It's 80 degrees outside. He picks, <laughs> picks her up in a fancy Ferrari. They make out in front of Rooney. He still doesn't seem to see any problem with it and then drive off while yelping. But uh, all of it is. So that's how it is in their family. Yeah. Uh-huh. Then the next one I have is, is Ferris talking his way into Shea Louis. You're Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. And Broderick takes that beat and he's like, yeah, that's me. Like he he just kind of, <laughs> he buys into it. Uh, he does the, I weep for the future. The maitre d' is just perfect. And Ferris does the, he stops and he looks at the camera. A, you can never go too far. B, if I'm going to get busted, it is not going to be by a guy like that. Come on. Yeah. And they work it out. They do the phones. This was kind of peak because you had this in Beverly Hills Cop. You had this in Fletch. This was peak trying to outwit really fucking annoying people by pretending to be different characters and using different phones. I don't know. What happened to this, Chris, as a comedy device? I feel like it's done. It's it's kind of a... It's the suburban white guy riff on on uh, Eddie Murphy and Torchies in 48 Hours, right? Definitely. I feel like probably cell phones kill this as like a bit as like, I'm going to go in and impersonate someone. Like you could just look right. Abe Froman up on Google now. But yeah, I really <laughs> like, there's a tremendous amount of this movie is, is basically hinges on good voice work, you know? Like, like yeah. it's essentially like Rooney. George Peterson. You're an asshole. <laughs> that, whole scene is awesome. The Ferrari Star Wars scene, which is my pick. Yeah. I've never wow. picked a shorter, most rewatchable scene. It probably made me laugh top four hardest ever in a movie because you see the guys leave. They drive off with the car. The two guys, they're perfect. And then 10 minutes pass. And all of a sudden they're playing the Star Wars music. It's like, what's going on here? And then you see those guys, these euphoric looks on their face and they're just flying through the air. That fucking kills me. It makes me laugh every time. And and when this movie was on cable, you know, if if I was in the general vicinity of that scene, I was hanging around until I could see those guys. I love those guys. I would get a poster of those guys. Next one is uh, the art museum, which really should have gone terribly. It's a scene that's out of place in the movie, and 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 it's a nine out of ten chance this fails. And they even said in the test screening for this. They used different music and it just didn't work. It like bombed in the screening. And then they used the music that they ended up using and it's really good. It's it's actually uh, an instrumental of a Smith song. Mm-hmm. And But the um, music that they got rid of is was written for the movie by Robert Smith from The Cure. Right. Right. They were like, Robert, we have to cut you out of the movie. He's Bob, like, that's okay. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> He's like, that's okay. I already hated myself. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, but imagine getting the news that your your song was replaced by a Morrissey song. That's got to be heartbreaking if you're Robert Smith in 1985. Yeah. Uh, probably led to the disintegration album. Before this movie came out, Robert Smith was like, Ferris who? That's, right. I'm good. <laughs> Just cut the check. <laughs> so according to John Hughes, the Art Institute was a, quote, self-indulgent seat of mine, which was a place of refuge for me. I went there quite a bit. I loved it. I knew all the paintings, the building. This was a chance for me to go back into this building, show the paintings that were my favorite. Nobody had ever shot in there. And then, it, you know, it has this awesome moment with Cameron that I'm sure in the script people were like, ooh. And it actually works. He's looking at this little girl. He realizes she's screaming and he starts identifying and it goes back and forth and gets closer. And I, I don't know. That scene gets me. It really works. Next one is uh, for me. I have two more rewatchables. Cameron destroying the car. Only because as somebody who just loves cars and that car is a, a top five Pantheon all-time great car, not not just for movies, but for life. It, it, it Just watching them destroy it, it's a replica as it turns out. You don't know though when you're watching it live, but everything about it, how mad he gets at the car, all the dynamics of it. Um, I'm not sure he's in the right. It's like, in the, unless your father's doing something really sinister and evil, it's a great car, man. I like. I, I hope my kids <laughs> never get that mad at me that they would destroy something that awesome. Or I, I just don't understand how terrible of a father he must have been. Chris, what 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 was he doing? It's a, short of molestation. <laughs> how could he have hated this guy this much? <laughs> I got to say, Bill, like, it, when I was young... I got it because, you know, like everybody, they have that one fight with their dad where they're just like, you know, no dad, what about you? That one real, real fight. Like usually like everybody at least has one. But now in my 40s, I'm like, Cam's going to get fucking executed when his dad comes home. (laughs) Like Cam's going to get a socket wrench to the eye if, if his dad is coming home, man. Like there's no like, hey, dad, you know, like you and I have a lot of pent up stuff and. I know that you love me, but sometimes you can't show it. But I, I kind of had an outburst and I destroyed a one of 100 Ferrari by kicking it through your fucking garage window. Like, you're done. It's a wrap. It's, it's, it goes Call too the far. CSI unit. How about this? You put twice as many miles on it that it had before. Maybe you kicked the front left headlight as a fuck you. And yeah. I think you've proved your point. I don't think you need to send the car hurtling backwards through the window to its death and then be like, it's fine. I'll take the heat. This had to happen anyway. I don't know. It bothers me. You guys, uh, you're just a couple of ghouls. Like, is this what your 40s is like where you just start identifying with the worst people in the world? The guys who own <laughs> GT250 California Spiders? Well- Wait yeah. a second. On. How do we know if he's the worst person on the earth? Because they got a divorce and he ignored Cameron. So, so we have Cameron to believe has to send Cameron. His That's flying the thing. Out of the we garage? have to believe him. I think Cameron's a homicidal maniac. <laughs> Let, let's go back through the movie and just only identify with people in their 40s, like the maitre d'. Like that guy was just trying to do his job. <laughs> Gordon Gecko. Uh, yeah. No, I think I think Cameron was unhinged. Like, Chris, does Cameron kill at later in life at some point? Is he, is he involved in a murder? If he makes it out of that day alive, you know, if, like, he probably is in traction when his dad's done putting a beating on him. But, like, I think that, like, if, if Cameron ever gets out, 
He probably does what Ferris says, which is he he gets married to the first girl he has sex with. <laughs> That's a very insightful comment for sure. Um, he's like an angsty I had that teenager. at what's age what the best. I just think I just think Cameron is an angsty teenager. I don't think he is a homicidal maniac. I think he's got some problems, but he's going to work it out. There's a lot of I, I I probably wouldn't have kicked a car through a, a garage. That I don't even I don't know if that would have ever even occurred to me. Nor did I grow up in a household that had a GT two fifty. California spider, but I, I I don't think he's crazy. I think he's just com- bent out of shape, and he's at that age when you get bent out of shape. So when Sean ignores his first son, and his son responds by burning all of his movie books that he's collected over the last forty years, Sean like ah, I get it. The kids had some angst. <sighs> no, I, that's when I go get the socket wrench and I bash him across the head. <laughs> My dad was pretty pissed off at me when he tried to teach me how to drive stick on his Acura and I almost stripped the transmission. <laughs> so I can't imagine how he would feel if I kicked a Ferrari through a wall. Uh, last rewatchable scene, Ferris sprinting home. It's just such a fun 80s scene. I, my favorite part is when he stops for the two hot girls. He, he's flying by them and they're just sunbathing and then two seconds pass, all of a sudden he comes back. Hi, I'm Ferris Bueller. I totally know multiple people who would have done that uh i also like when the dad when they're talking about the daughter and he's and the mom's like what do we think what should he do what should we do and he's like i think we should shoot her and he says it like completely seriously rooney getting his uh the wallet and the matthew broderick and the sister finally helping out all all that stuff's really great him getting back to his room in time throwing the ball his one chance and it hits the thing perfectly and everything falls into place uh, really good stuff. Any other rewatchable scenes for you guys? Yeah. The parade. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, even though it's corny, even though it doesn't make any sense, even though there has never been a parade like that in American history, and even though he is lip syncing, I still get goosebumps when he does it. Same. I, I, I Same. Probably, 100% Also, Chris. until I was like 13, I thought he was singing. You know, I was like, damn, Matthew Broderick sounds a lot like John Lennon. This is awesome. But, you know, like... <laughs> I think that the dancing in that scene and the beer garden girls uh, and the way that they basically caught like a it, it's such a cool celebration of a city and of I mean, you talk about like quarantine dreams, man, like the last time I've been in a crowd that was losing it like that, I can't even remember. And it's just such a great, great fantasy scene. It's like it's literally like every kid's dream to rock a stadium full of people like that. But to imagine doing it on Michigan Avenue is insane. Chris, I you said everything that was on my mind when I was rewatching it. Same thing. The goosebumps, the idea of being in a crowd of people and feeling comfortable and just missing that. The exultation, the thinking that Ferris was actually singing when I was a kid. <laughs> like I had all of that. And I I I legitimately was like, is this the greatest moment in movie history when I was watching it last night? I is there a more exultant moment in a movie than when Twist and Shout kicks in? It's 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 so fun. I thought it was like two and a half minutes too long. Oh, Christ. (laughs) Where did you have to be? Did you have somewhere else you needed to go? Yeah. Pick one of the two songs. Just do Twist and Shout. I don't know if I needed Doc No, 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 no. It's got to set it up. You've got to set it up because you've got to have enough time for Cameron and Sloan to have their conversation. And he's just, he's weirdly singing Donka Shane. And they build up to the crowd losing it when they do Twist and Shout. Yeah. Would it would have taken one more scene at Wrigley Field? This is just you're you're <laughs> you just wanted to see, uh, you, I, you wanted I, to spend I, more time with Rooney at the house. Is that what you were uh, worried about? 
I thought it was good. I thought they proved their point. Maybe, Maybe we could have spent more time with Cameron's dad. You know, just hung out with him a little bit, seeing what yeah, he was up to. Like, see him at work, <laughs> Ta- talking about the car to somebody. Maybe some backstory. Uh, what's age? What's age the best? Our first introduction to Cameron when he says, "I'm dying," and Ferris says, "You're not dying. You just can't think of anything good to do." Especially identifiable during the the quarantine when we're all just completely bored out of our minds at this point, being with the same people day in and day out. Uh, another would say the best just Alan Ruck for a different reason. Now that he's been reinvented yet again as one of our favorite succession characters, it's just fun to see him and Ferris Bueller. We have this thirty five year history with Alan Ruck now, and uh, and I love his succession character. That guy fucking kills me. I can't wait to watch that again this summer. Cameron is not going to watch it this summer. <laughs> it's going to be next summer. <laughs> oh, you th- oh, that's right. They didn't finish it. Fuck. Yeah. Um, Cameron is George Peterson. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. That was a bad George Peterson. <laughs> I, uh, I like his whole impression. He's really going for it. The anyone, anyone voodoo economics, the cuts to the students either in a coma that one girl who's just staring at him with like pure hatred, like her, her eyes are just narrowing into slits. She hates him so much. Uh, the guy with the drool is just like the perfect God. I forgot how much high school sucked scene. Um, the beat city. Why is that song on Spotify? Chris? I don't know. I, but we can talk about the soundtrack in a second. One of the great mid eighties songs and just no sign of it anywhere. I don't know what happened to it. That and uh, when you come back to me by World Party are the two. I can't believe these songs are. That's on the other anywhere. one. That's not. That's the other one. I have no idea where that where it is. And the beautiful girls, the theme to beautiful girls, also not on anywhere. There's some classics that are just like have been wiped from the earth. I don't really understand it. Sean doesn't care. He's still thinking about Donka Shane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, better, 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 so wing better. I I don't think this movie invented that, right? What did he say no. after? What's he say? Like Kennedy, Kennedy? What's he say? Kennedy, Kennedy. He can't hit. He can't hit. Can't hit it. Can't hit it. Oh. Can't hit it. I feel like this movie invented that, though. I don't know no. if I had heard that before. Not in really? a movie. Like, or popularized it, I should say. Mm. I'm sure yeah, it was I mean, going like on in baseball games. Yeah, I feel like it's something that baseball players said on benches, it, you know, in the 50s and 60s. And it evolved over time into something that, that fans started chanting. The 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California has aged the best. There's like none. It's your left. favorite character and, in the movie. Oh my god! It went it went in auction 2018 for 18 million dollars. It is, wow. it is no. not a not a car you can find anywhere. That's why they would you the rather replicas. have the Ferrari or Cameron's dad's house? Yeah. What, so what was up with that house? Because I couldn't get a feel for how big the house was. Because it seems like they were just showing the garage, like where they kept the car. I, don't I know feel if like we Cameron's ever house, saw the house is very fantasy friendly in terms of the decor. It looks a lot like a lot of the architectural masterpieces you find in the Hollywood Hills. The sort of the all glass, the and 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 wood and recovered wood. It's a beautiful, beautiful house. I would love to live in a house like that. One point eight million in in, in twenty twenty, literally in ten economy. times the price for a car. I know. Yeah, but I wonder. I was surprised that that house was in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. It it's, like, it's unusual for, for for that part of the country, that style. It seemed like a Mulholland Drive kind of house or something. Uh, I like when Ferris 
realizes the Ferrari has 301 miles on it. When he does the double take and kind of leans in. Um, Charlie Sheen's 1986 is aged the best. Lucas Ferris Bueller platoon. Iconic. All one year. And goes from, he's Guy and Lucas. He's the guy who is in a bit part in Ferris Bueller to all of a sudden he's an A-list star in platoon and that leads to Wall Street and some of the other stuff. Uh, I don't think it's peak Charlie Sheen, but it's up there. And then, uh, I guess I say Mia Sarah as Sloan Peterson. I had a lot of stock of her, Chris. But but her rookie cards put them in nice holders. Really was expecting uh, <laughs> a lot of great things from her. Never yeah. totally happened. But I do want to induct her into the mid eighties Mount Rushmore with uh, Kelly Preston, Joyce Heiser, and Elizabeth Shue. Congratulations to Mia Sarah on all her accomplishments. Can we also induct her into the Bill Simmons and Chris Ryan talk about a teenage girl Hall of Fame? I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was exactly the same age as all the people I mentioned when those movies came out. Well, Apollonia uh, versus Mia Sarah. Who do you got? Stop it. This is why we left you off the Basic Instinct podcast. <laughs> the, no, I as somebody who... Bill, when we're was, done, just do a poll. Just do a Twitter poll. I think it'll right. go great. <laughs> well, I was the same age as all of these movies when they came out. So I'm yeah. reacting to... How did we react, me and my friends? And it all culminated with Amanda Peterson and Can't Buy Me Love. But I, I almost consider that a late 80s movie. I don't consider that a mid-80s movie. But uh, especially like Joyce Heiser, just one of the guys, which that was, oh, she was kind of a one and done. But we all loved her. I, w- I would have signed up for all Joyce Heiser projects. She and- She's the only woman who can claim that she dated both Bruce Springsteen and Warren Beatty. So you know Joyce Heiser was a very special person. For a significant amount of time. Yeah. Any other what stage the best for you guys? Yeah. Um is this is this maybe not the best soundtrack of all time, but is this the best use of pop music in a movie ever? It's amazing. It's pretty good. It's pretty it's, good. Cause it does it it does something that I didn't think you could do, Chris, which is like you literally the I Dream of Genie song and the Star Wars theme appear in the movie, and those songs don't belong to the movie. And yet no. they do at the same time. It's like that's that felt like such a revolutionary act to integrate these other bits of pop culture into the story. I mean, you can make the argument that like Pulp Fiction and um, Goodfellas and Boogie Nights and Dazed all have like better soundtracks. Like you'd rather listen to those songs. But I don't think there's a movie that uses music in this way because you can't imagine now the Art Institute of Chicago scene without the cover of Please Let Me Get What I Want. And you can't imagine the running at the end. I think that's English beat, right? Is at the end. And yeah, like the the city song and and um and yellow, oh yeah. Like you can't imagine Six Six Sputnik is like a huge part of why the opening monologue works. So it's it's kind of you can't really do this movie without these songs used in the way that they did them. And I think Paul Hirsch basically cut this movie to the rhythms of these songs. And you it feels like it at least. And that uh oom bow bow chicka yeah. chicka that one. It's just that's one of those if you hear that on the radio, you're just transported to Ferris Bueller. I think there's very few songs that are so synonymous with uh with the movie. Uh what's age also- worse? Oh, well, I, one, one last thing about that is I find myself looking forward to the end of this movie more than most movies because I'm waiting for that English beat drop, the March of the Swivelhead song to start. And then I know it, it means he's going to start running. 
Like a yeah. great way to end your movie is with a chase. And he just goes into this incredible chase, like 10 minute long chase sequence, which is from a, from a nerdy perspective, like pretty great filmmaking. It looks cool. It moves perfectly. Like you said, it's synced to the music, but also that's just a great, that's a great record. I really like, listen, I would listen to that song every day. So I, the music is really, really important to making this movie feel lasting too. There's a couple different playlists on Spotify, but again, it doesn't have Beat City, which hurts my feelings. They, we should just f- kind of figure out how to make that happen. What's age the worst? Um, Jeffrey Jones? In real yeah. life, yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. performance. But yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a he's a he's a, a sex criminal, so that's not ideal. He became involved in a massive child porn scandal uh, a few years later and went to jail. And uh it's kind of a bummer. Um, another what's age the worst. I, for the most part, liked how they did Ferris's room. It felt mm-hmm. very 80s to me. Some of the big-ass posters during the era, you never framed anything. You just sh- stuck shit on the wall. There's a great poster that I picked up for the first time at the end of the movie that you see against the wall next to his door, which is a Simple Minds Don't You Forget About Me poster. One right. year after Breakfast Club, which I love, like Hughes making his own universe. That's the so idea great. that it's all, yeah. And he has like Cabaret Voltaire, like a bunch of new wave stuff in there, which kind of makes sense. He has the synth. So, yeah. All right. All that's great. But oh, what's age the worst? For whatever reason, they put Brian Ferry's giant slave to love poster <laughs> over his bed. I don't know what the fuck was going on there. I, I was the same age as Ferris in this movie. If I went over to a friend's house and they had Brian Ferry's Slave to Love like over their bed, I'd be like, what the fuck is going on with you? I don't know why they did that. Maybe they liked the poster. Does this movie invent the set dressing technique of any teenager just has to have 15 bands, 15 band posters up there? Probably. Um, casting what ifs. Emilio Estevez turned down the role of Cameron. I did not know this until last night. Glad he did. I love Emilio Estevez, but thank God. I think he actually could have done a good job with this. I think there's like a part of his character in The Breakfast Club that is a little bit like Cameron in a, in a strange way, despite the fact that he's a jock and he's got a lot of problems with his dad. So you can see why John Hughes leaned into that. But I'm 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 happier we got Alan Ruck. Chris? I'm happy we got Alan Ruck too. I I, uh, I don't think it would have worked with Emilio Estevez, especially coming off of Repo Man. He seems more like the punk rock version of Ferris Bueller than than he does like Alan Ruck. Ruck had previously auditioned for what role? Bender, right? Oh, wow. Well, that wouldn't have worked. No. No, Dad, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> Molly Ringwald wanted to play Sloan. And uh, and John Hughes, just like Mia Sarah Moore, she thought she had an elegance and a maturity that he wanted for the role. So there you go. Sorry, Molly Ringwald. I think he also said to her to Ringwald that he didn't think the part was big enough, right? Like it wasn't like a, a big enough role, right? Yeah, but that's what you say to somebody when you don't want to cast them because the part was plenty big. She's in the whole movie. Uh, Hughes said Broderick was the only actor he had in mind when he wrote the screenplay. Their backup choice, according to the <clears throat> casting directors, John Cusack. Yeah. I think Cusack gets his Ferris Bueller with Say Anything. Like he gets his iconic high schooler. I would say Hoops McCann is also like that too, or like Hoops in in One Crazy Summer is kind of a great high school character. But I think Lloyd Dobler is too. What's that? And Better Off Dead. Yeah. But I think Lloyd Dobler is sort of in the same vein as Ferris. He's one of those guys that um, he goes back and forth in the time time continuum 
Continuum. Why can't I say that? Continuum. You he's got in it. high school. He's in college. He's an adult. He's back in college. Then he's back in high school. Like he's like Omar Epps. He's all over the place. Um, <laughs> so Anthony Michael Hall told Vanity Fair that his relationship with Hughes ended rather abruptly following their work together on Weird Science. We talked about this a little in the, in the Breakfast Club podcast. Whether Hughes seemed like he was upset that he was that uh, Hall was dating. Molly Ringwald and taking other parts and things like that. Um, he believes Hughes wrote the roles of Ducky and Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller for him. I don't know if I believe that. I do. I think he wanted to have his De Niro. I think he really was trying to have his avatar and he, he wow. was so blown away by Hall and not getting him like soured them. Hughes was weirdly vindictive for somebody who had such a, like yeah. not in like a dangerous Michael Corleone kind of way, but he definitely, if he felt slighted one time, you were just out. You didn't come back. You never were in his movie again. It's even, I have a uh, Bill Paxton, Bill, I'm sorry, Bill Paxton. And uh, they worked together in weird, si- in weird science. And then he offered him the role of the garage attendant in Ferris and Paxton turned it down. He felt the role was too small. And he regretted it because he was never offered him another role. He was just like, all right, you're out. I don't know. I can identify a little bit. Um, it's kind of high school of him to do that. It is. Yeah. Paul Gleason considered for the role of Ed Rooney. He had previously played uh, Dick Vernon in The Breakfast Club, <laughs> which, as we talked about in The Breakfast Club podcast, Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club were basically filmed simultaneously in Shermer High. Shermer High is the location for Weird Science, um, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, and Ferris Bueller. Could you have just had Dick Vernon be Ed Rooney? Would that have been too weird? Well, I just think that Dick Vernon probably is still looking for work after the debacle of that uh, oh, of yeah. everybody <laughs> smoking weed during <laughs> during Breakfast Club. And like when they all come in and find the library destroyed, I think Dick Vernon is is put on ex- uh, administrative leave. Sean, yes or no? I just think it would have been distracting. Different energy, you know. Paul Gleason has a different energy than Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey Jones is like way more sitcommy, you know. There's something like uh, it's like a Laurel and Hardy character or something. And Paul Gleason is just a huge prick, just a just an a one asshole. And I, the movie has the, these two movies have uh, like a little are a little different tone wise so I, I i think jeffrey jones was was the right choice chris watch what i do here i'm gonna pull a sean fantasy so you're saying that you want the child porn guy over Paul <laughs> that's 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 what you're telling us i'll i'll cop to that if you rank the teenage girls from movies that you love that the teenage girls when i was a teenager and i love them that those are my rankings uh, so wait well, breakfast club was 84 right uh, 85, 85, 85. It's interesting that there's like th- that really distinct, like Ferris feels more new wave than breakfast club in some ways, yeah. you know, like there's a lot more synths. There's a lot more like funky outfits. Whereas the, the breakfast club kids are a little bit more trad early eighties, late seventies, like varsity jackets, nice skirts. Like even the punk rock kid is like almost just like a, other side of the tracks kind of rebel without a cause guy. And then when you get like just a year later, there's just a much more distinctive sense of style in this movie. Well, even the, the, at the arcade, when Rooney thinks it's Ferris and the girl turns around and it's 
short haired punk rocker she, girl. Like that she was spits with her the straw. Yeah. Yeah. That was a new wave look too. Oh man. Best that guy, AKA the Joey pants award. I'm going with both parking attendants. So Richard, Richard Edson. Edson, man, who really weirdly looks like Scotty Pippen. <laughs> it, watch Ferris the next time. It, it's like Scotty Pippen's twin brother. And then the other guy, Larry Flash Jenkins, who is in Fletch and is in season three of The White Shadow, my favorite show ever. Uh, the season we don't really acknowledge, but I've still seen all the episodes. But uh, I always appreciated that he wasn't Larry Jenkins. He was Larry, quote, Flash, unquote, Jenkins in the credits, which I don't know a lot of people who put quotes in their IMDb name. <laughs> but I have both of those guys, unless you want to go with the maitre d' from uh, Shea Louis, because he's one of those guys, too. Yeah, I also have uh, Max Perlick and Scott Coffey from from the classroom scene. Both show up in a lot of 80s movies. I think Max Perlick's in... Beautiful Girls. Beautiful Girls. That's my guy. Yeah. Beautiful Girls. Is he in yeah. My Own Private Idaho or, or or Drugstore Cowboy? I think that's right. Yeah, and I, then I he's Scott Coffey's in a bunch of stuff. So yeah, like that whole classroom scene has got a bunch of 80s people in there, including Swanson. Edson, though, is a legend. Edson is yeah. in more important movies than almost any actor in the 80s. He's not ever, rarely the star, but he's in Stranger Than Paradise, Desperately Seeking Susan, Platoon, Good Morning Vietnam, Eight Men Out, and then Do the Right Thing. That's an amazing collection of movies in the 80s. 80s. Yeah. And he's he's actually important in Do the Right Thing. He's got like he a much bigger part than this parking attendant part. Yeah, yeah he's, he's Vito. I don't think anybody knows his name's Richard Edson, though. I think they just know him as that guy from Do the Right Thing. I think and you're right. Ferris Bueller. So he's a really good that guy. We could almost name this after him, but we won't. The Vincent Hanna They Knew Award for Best Overacting. I, I think Jeffrey Jones dials it up a couple times. You don't like my policies. You can just come on down here and smooch my big old white butt. Can't. Pucker up, buttercup. What? Nine he's, times, would you say? <laughs> he's he's really going for it a couple times. And then uh I wanted to give it to I I, I thought when I was gonna watch again, I was like, ah, Alan Ruck and the Ferrari scene that Sean loves when somebody's beloved possession gets destroyed. <laughs> um because <laughs> the guy <laughs> was made to him at a dinner um, that I thought maybe Alan Ruck in that scene, but he's actually really good in that scene. I, I don't think he dials it up. Anybody else for uh, Vincent Hanna? Maybe the maitre d'. Hmm. Hmm. Deanne Waiters award. Easy. This is two people. Chaz Sheen. Yeah. Sheen. Drugs. Thank you. No, I'm straight. I meant, are you in here for drugs? Why are you here? Drugs. I don't know why I'm here. Why don't you go home? Why don't you put your thumb up your butt? You wear too much eye makeup. Edie McClurg as Rooney's secretary. She's only in a couple scenes. She's actually pretty funny. And what a little pulls asshole. the pants out of her hair. Does a couple things. Kids, she's... Kids think she's a righteous dude. Like she's pretty good to 80s secretary. And then I'm throwing in, I just love Mrs. Bueller. I put her in a, in a pod we did a couple of weeks ago about uh, the 80s mom, Mount Rushmore. I felt like Mrs. Bueller's way up there. Everything I want from a mom. Loves so her kids. Believes I in love them Katie to the bitter Bueller. end. I love Katie Bueller. I also would love to know what were a realtor and an advertising guy in suburban Chicago pulling down that they could have that house with... Two cars, three, two cars or three cars, two, three cars, right? Cause Jeannie's got a car. 
Katie's got a car and the dad's got a car. But, but so we haven't really talked about Jennifer Grey at all yet. Would you guys? I know that Je- I, I know that Jeannie has more screen time than we would usually give a Dion Waiters person. But at some point, we should talk about Jennifer Grey. You want to do it now? Sure. I mean, I just think that a much maligned character because she's basically the the secondary villain of this movie, but is like kind of I I kind of loved her this time around. Like I loved it when she's calling the cops and she's just like dickhead, <laughs> like smashing <sighs> the phone. I love her karate kicks on uh, on Ed Rooney in the kitchen, and I think her attitude kind of is like the best. It's a really great counterbalance to this movie of her just being like, this guy can't get away with it. Sean? I'm a huge fan. I had a, I had a similar reaction. I, th- this time around, she's like a great comic actress. And the karate kicks are a little bit of a preview of what's to come in Dirty Dancing, you know? Um, I don't know. I feel like she has a weird reputation now because she got a nose job and people were like, you betrayed what made you special. There's like a the, the universe has somehow turned on Jennifer Grey when she did that. But, um, I, I you know, she's like, She's the platonic older sister. You know, she like is exactly what you think of when you think of your sister giving you shit. Um, I think she's great in the movie. Really funny. And, and, and you're right, Chris, like probably a better villain in many ways than, than, than Rooney. And one of the best, it is like the scene is in one of the best scenes of the movie that isn't a fair scene, which is the, the Charlie Sheen police station, you know. I like that she's kind of a sociopath, but not totally. But that scene when she's trying to drive back to the house, she's getting chased <laughs> by the cops. Like she's losing her mind. So we're going with Chad Sheen for this. Sure. That'd be my vote. Yeah. According to the half-assed internet research, he stayed up for over two days straight. So the character could have a certain look to him. I like that. That's why he stayed up. Two sure. days straight. Oh yeah. I'm sure it was yeah. just getting into that's character. Yeah. Definitely. Totally a method thing. We don't have any history at all of him uh, maybe staying up for 48 hours straight. Recasting couch. I just want to get Jeffrey Jones out of there. Unlike Sean, I I wish somebody else was in that How part How dare now. you? Um, I I was thinking Alan Richmond would have been really fun. Alan Rickman? Alan Richmond. Who is Die Alan Richmond? Rickman. Rickman, yeah. Alan Rickman? Yeah. Rickman, yes. <laughs> Why did I say Richmond. We did. We all did like a Die Hard podcast together. Yeah, Alan Rickman. <laughs> Alan Rickman. I would have been. That would have been pretty weird if like Hans Gruber was the principal. <laughs> Slightly overqualified. That was my um, point, though. Like, I I think that's why it could have worked. Hans Gruber yeah. is, as as the Shermer High uh, assistant principal, whatever. I also would have voted for Alan Richmond. Um, half Wait, what, ab- inter- what about Ronnie Cox? <laughs> could he have done That's the good. funny funny stuff i think so ron this is the ronnie cox sweet spot you guys just talked about him on total recall that his run from 83 to 90 playing like guys in charge this is legendary we're gonna take a break and then do half-ass internet research just wanted to make sure you were listening to our latest ringer podcast it is called the wire way down in the hole hosted by jamel hill Van Lathan, they're going through every single episode of The Wire, one by one. They have a little awards, categories, the whole thing. It's actually a little bit like the rewatchables uh, in, in the best possible way. It's an awesome podcast. It's an awesome show. You can actually watch the show if you want to watch it uh, again with Van and Jamel. It's on Amazon Prime and it's on HBO Go for free right now. So check that out. The Wire, way down the hole. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple. 
wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget about Flying Coach, another new podcast we launched with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll. They've done two. They talk about coaching, uh, leadership, a whole bunch of great things, sports related. You can subscribe to both of those on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so this is a good one for half-assed internet research. I can't believe I didn't realize this until I did the half-assed internet research. The restaurant, Chez Louis, A. Froman, noon reservation for three. Same restaurant as the Blues Brothers with Elwood and Jake. They they torment the guys at dinner to try to get them to be in the band and do the whole thing when they when they paint their outfits so they look like tuxedos, the whole thing. Also, same restaurant at St. Elmo's Fire where Kirby, played by Abilo Estevez, waits for Andy McDowell and then she shows up and then ditches him within two minutes because she gets a call. So an iconic 80s rest, movies restaurant. This is a span of three years. Blues Brothers, St. Elmo's Fire, and, and Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Chez Louis. Uh, Ferris... There's a deleted scene where he asks his dad on the phone about bonds his father purchased when he was born. Then takes one of them from a shoebox in his father's closet, cashes it at the bank with his girlfriend, telling the hard of hearing Taylor teller they're pregnant with a Jeep, then uses the money to pay for his day off. It was removed because it made him seem like a thief. Probably it does move. make sense, though, because in the uh, the bathroom scene at Chez Louis, he's got like quite a... A knot going. Yeah. yeah Although he's true. pretty cheap with the parking attendant. You know, I think even in 1985, a $5 to watch the car for a while is still, you're undercutting it there. You're undercutting yeah, that's yourself. A the uh, Ferris has a line in the movie that was used in the trailer too, where he said, come next year, I'll be the first kid to ride in the space shuttle. Then the Challenger exploded. They had to remove all space shuttle stuff, stuff out. Matthew Braddock and Jennifer Grey got engaged before the movie was released, kept it kind of quiet, and then the accident happened. Everybody found out. Did you know that Ferris's parents were married in real life? Not till today. Not not till reading about it. I, I read about it too, but they they got married after the movie. Yeah, they met, they met on, on the, the movie. set. And then, yeah. And they got married, had two children, and got divorced. Cindy Pickett mm-hmm. and Lyman Ward. Um. Alan Ruck was doing Broderick's impersonation of the Biloxi blues director that they had when he was doing George Peterson and was doing it um, to try to make Broderick laugh and crack up during the scene. So it's a little like Wayne's world when they're doing Lawrence Michaels impersonation as doc as uh, or not Wayne's world, uh, Austin powers when he turns Dr. Evil into um, Lauren Michaels mentioned how Broderick hurt his knee. Couldn't do a lot of the twist and shout choreography and thank God because that then that scene would have been longer. Um nothing. I that was a little dig. Well also <laughs> the 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 choreography was done by Kenny Ortega who did yeah dirty dancing but then also like high school musical and tons of other stuff. Yeah. Um Ben Stein did his lecture off camera and the student extras were laughing so hard that they decided to actually just keep in the voodoo economics that whole scene. That was not supposed <laughs> to be in the script. There was a lot of talk about a Ferris sequel. And I remember being excited about it at various points of my life. And Broderick was pretty steadfast. The film didn't need a sequel. Um, didn't need to be updated. And then John Hughes died and it became a mute point. But um, we can go into the sequel part later. The Ferris Bueller Show, 1990, NBC. Can you remember who starred as Ferris Bueller? Charlie Schlotter. Jennifer Aniston as Jeannie. Yeah. I will didn't say... Go, didn't go Also. Well. 
Do you guys prefer the Ferris Bueller TV adaptation or Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which is essentially just Ferris Bueller? Definitely Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Yeah. I watched that religiously. The bus scene that plays in the ending credits was actually supposed to be in the movie. And they cut it and Hughes still liked it. So he threw it on at the end. But that's why it doesn't really make sense. It's six o'clock. It's getting dark. Why why is a whole school bus of kids coming home from school at six and not three and the whole thing? So that's why. It's a good this is a good point. It's a very good nitpick. That why are yeah. there that many kids on a bus at six o'clock? I think John Hughes is just like, fuck it, I'm putting it in. Three cars used in this movie. Hughes had originally, for the Ferrari, Hughes had originally planned for it to be a Mercedes, came across a replica of a 61 Ferrari GT in a magazine. And uh, they used replicas. There were only 56 of those cars ever made. As I mentioned, the last one um, went for 18.5 in 2015 and then 17 million. Another one went in 2016. So this company called Modena Design, they made the replicas. They put the Ferrari badges on there and they did this a lot. Ferrari ended up suing them and they went bankrupt because of this movie. So oh, wow. more blood on, uh, on, on uh, Cameron's hands. He bankrupted Jeez. this company. Another terrible thing he did. Can't believe you turned on Cameron. This is terrible. I didn't turn on him. I just thought it was kind of fucked up that he ruined the car. It was a little bit fucked up. Not sure he needed to ruin the car. Bill's going to remake this movie as Cameron's dad's day off. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no day off. He doesn't have a car. Ape, Apex Mountain. Mia Sarah. <laughs> shut, shut up, John. Uh, the Fer- how about the Ferrari Corporation? <laughs> yeah, Ferrari. Flex, really flexing in the mid 80s. Shermer High School, I feel like, yes. Shea Louis, absolutely. Broderick's a tough one because I think you could argue yes because he certainly coming out of this movie had the most options career-wise he's ever going to have. It's the biggest movie he's ever made, but he did went on to do some really good things. War Game was a big hit. I think what's strange about his career is I'm not sure he had an Apex Mountain. He had some, some definite peaks, but I don't know if there's one moment you can point to and say that was it. I don't even positive it, this, it was this. You could, you could make a case for the producers on Broadway. That, yeah, when that's that, good. W- w- when that was happening, that was the biggest thing, honestly, like in popular culture, which sounds stupid to say, but because no, you right. only see it in New York, but it was so massive and it was 20, whatever, 20 years after this movie. But that was a huge, huge thing. It definitely was probably bigger than Book of Mormon and on the level of Hamilton for. Yeah, you know, it was the Hamilton year. of its time. Totally. Yeah, no question. I agree with that. Yeah. So maybe that was it. Jennifer Grey, hers was Dirty Dancing. Uh, Chicago summer movies, you could make the case. I was going to say, is this is this Apex Mountain for Chicago in movies? It's it's very possible. It it definitely uses the city the best. Yeah, there's like Blues Brothers, there's this. About last night. Yeah. Maybe if you're just going to 80s. I had a related Apex Mountain question. Do you guys think this is the, this is Apex Mountain for the all-in-one day movie? Ooh. What are the Sean. other nominees? That's good. Is Dazed? Dazed and Confused, Dog Day Afternoon, um, the Before the Sunrise, right, Before the right Sunset movies. Just one day, right? Do, do yeah. the Right Thing is on that list. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a gang of... <laughs> <laughs> no, <it's... laughs> uh, 
I don't know. It's I, th- that's just a great category of movie. Well, what about what's the one that uh, Chris loves? Johnny Depp in Vegas, Snake Eyes. No, Snake Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Snake Cage. But yeah. that, is Snake all, that, is all, that is all in one day. That'd be good. I, I would like to hear from the uh, listeners if what they think the all in one day king is. But it's got it. Ferris has got to be in the running. Pick a nits. Man, I have a lot. So I know the oh, answer. You know what this, my favorite but- all in one day movie is, I think, is Inside Man. It, it, it extends oh. a little bit Ooh. past that. But that's a really great all-in-one-day movie. Good one. Pick a nits. So Cameron's not wearing a Blackhawks jersey. He's wearing a, a Red Wings jersey. And it, it bothered me for 30-plus years. John Hughes grew up first 12 years of his life in Michigan, loved the local hockey team, the Red Wings, decided Cameron would wear the Red Wings jersey. I struggle on this because I feel like Cameron, it's kind of the thing you do. It's like your one rebellious move is to not like the local hockey team. It's like your friends are Blackhawk fans. Like, I'm going to be a Lions fan. Like, we all knew guys like that who were just like, I'm I'm going to be a dick and, and zag when everybody else is zigging. Um, but I also think, I don't know if he would have had the courage to become a Red Wings fan living in Illinois because he was just such a, such like a overthinking it pussy, like with all the stuff he was doing that, <laughs> It feels like he just would have had the Blackhawks, whoever their guy was, he would have had the Keith Magnuson jersey or whatever. Um, I, I still don't know how I feel about it. What do you guys think? Hughes did it for a reason, right? Because he was he he idolized Gordie Howe, so it was like right, a, a, no. a nod to Gordie Howe. Which I but but Hughes is a Blackhawks fan, which I always found to be kind of confusing that he idolized Gordie Howe, but he was a Blackhawks fan. So it was a Gordie Howe homage. It just made. Little sense with the Cameron character. I never got Just it. two things about that, too. Also, hockey jerseys, they're not breathable. It's really <laughs> hot to wear a fucking Red Wings jersey all day long in 80-degree Chicago weather. And I don't know about you guys, but sports stadiums back in the 80s were a little bit rougher. I could, Does he really get away with wearing a Red Wings jersey at Wrigley? It's a good, good one. call. Because like if you wore like a Giants jersey or a Cowboys jersey to the vet in the 80s, you were probably going to get in a fight. That's really aggressive. The Chicago Detroit was definitely a thing. I mean, it's on the Red Sox Yankees kind of level. I agree with you. Yeah, if you, if somebody's wearing a Giants jersey in Philly, they wouldn't have gone well. Now, Philly, they'll kill you for anything. But um, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't uh, we mentioned Wooden Rooney? recognize Ferris outside the Ferrari unless he didn't have his contacts in or something. I I don't, I don't see how he doesn't realize that that's Ferris from 20 feet away. And also speaking of noticing things, Ferris's mom goes to check in on Ferris and the mannequin's arm is out of the bed and it's black. And she just, it's that's six feet away. She never, never kind of does the double take on that one. So it's, it's just not the same color as, as Ferris. And then, um, Ferris's dad sees Sloan in the cab, doesn't recognize her. It's his son's intense girlfriend that they've been dating for a long time. She's never, he's, Ferris's dad has never met Sloan. Yeah. She's never come over. I, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good call. It, it, did you guys ever have girlfriends that you never introduced to your parents though in high school? Well, but I, I mean, that's fair, but it seems like they've been dating for a long time. It seems like unless they had dropped something in there that like they did was a very relatively really recent relationship. I think the sunglasses are doing a lot of work in this movie. We're like, yeah, if you definitely. put on a pair of sunglasses, you're just like fucking invisible to somebody else. 
Chris, uh, you want to do 20 seconds on the costume changes in the first 20 minutes? Well, this is the problem with what you were saying with the timeline is in the first opening minutes, Ferris goes through the following outfits. Starts out in pajamas, goes pajamas, robe, showers, uh, then switches to swim trunks for the iced tea by the pool. He dresses up for the first time like Sloane's father wearing the blue Oxford shirt. Then we get a quick scene of him in checkered pants and Chuck's doing the dance routine. Then he puts on pinstripe pants and a Hawaiian shirt when he's on the phone with the freshman. And he's like, you ever see Alien? Uh, then he changes into a suit to be Sloane's dad. And then somehow out of the suit goes into the outfit that he wears for the rest of the day, which is the white t-shirt, sweater vest, and leather jacket. So that's a little less than 10 outfit changes Outfit changes are time consuming. I think it's even like we're pushing like the realm of reality. And also just like you kind of imagine if you had seen what Ferris was doing that morning without the soundtrack and without the fourth wall breaking monologue and without all the cool cutting. And it just looks like a maniac changing his clothes every five minutes. I never understood the suit. That's where he lost me. Really? It's like, I like that look. No, it's just like on top of all this, you're going to go out for the day in, in a in a suit, and then he he flips it pretty quickly. But I, it's it almost seems like he was going for a job interview. All right, this is a deep, deep nitpick, but I'm proud of it. Who who's working at the parking garage while those guys are driving the Ferrari 100 <laughs> miles around Chicago? <laughs> That's I a good never call. Thought of that. It's That's a parade. A it's a parade. There's lots of traffic. Just nobody, nobody on duty. That's it. Sorry. Wow. Edson Just, and Flash I, were derelict in their duties. What happened when the actual Abe Froman showed up at the restaurant? I mean, nothing, right? Like, there's, it's like, what are they going to, I mean, there's a whole litany of crimes committed by Ferris, but. Just the fact that there's just no tracking. You don't have a phone. You don't have, you don't, you can't figure out who those people were. It would probably just be like, shit, we got to sit Abe Froman now. But then wouldn't they kick Ferris out because he's pretending to be Abe Froman? What would they do there? It's it's a whole really starts hurting your head. Um, it's just a small nitpick. Ferris inexplicably jumps on a parade float and belts out two songs to the entire city of Chicago unrehearsed. Seems natural to me. This okay. seems pretty cool. I have a you larger never, you, nitpick about that though. Okay, is this day fun? Like you take it, you're just playing hooky. You're doing like a senior cut day. You're going out with your girlfriend and your best friend. These guys never get one beer. They never smoke a joint behind like a store somewhere. They go to a museum, a nice restaurant, and a parade. Like that's their senior cut day. They don't they don't go like drink forties and and like listen to listen to music and smoke cigarettes. Your dirtbag ethics have nothing to do with what makes Ferris Bueller beautiful. That's insane. Your take on a cut day is you should go smoke a joint in an alleyway. This guy goes to fucking Wrigley and a museum. That's incredible. This is an amazing he, day. Are you kidding so, me? Sean, like, They're driving like, hey, a Ferrari man, around Chicago. Let's go. Let's go. To, let's go back in time. And I'm like, senior cut day, Sean. And you're like, oh, man, I've been looking forward to this. We're going to go do something. You and me, we're going to go out our day off. I'm taking you to the stock exchange. <laughs> I'm gonna and if you're if you're Cameron, I'm taking you to the stock exchange so that you can watch me flirt with my hot girlfriend all day long. It, that part is not ideal. The stock exchange, I don't know. Do we need a new category in the rewatchables called the Silent Judge, where Sean judges <laughs> one of us in some way? <laughs> I I think it's the most innocent cut day possible, which I think was part of the point of the movie. But yeah, do I think they would have smoked a joint before they went into the art museum 
or the Sears Tower? Yes. Especially the Sears Tower. That that like yeah. you could argue that they might have smoked a joint because who else is doing that window thing if you're if you're stone cold sober? That thing gives me the willies, by the way. Um best quote, we've mentioned a lot of quotes. You guys have any favorite quotes that just come flying out for you? Every single thing that the George Peterson bit, the whole bit is some of the most quoted stuff in my in my life. Um, every single thing that Rock says, I think, is perfect and hilarious, and his performance is perfect. I mean, there's a million lines in this movie. There's a million Ferris lines. The like the opening and closing line, the life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Is iconic. But I, everything that Rock does with Peterson, I I think I'd love to hear the whole thing on this podcast, Mr. Peterson. <coughs> um, no, I, I I think I owe you an apology, sir. Well, I should say you do. I uh. I, I, I... Well, I think you should be sorry, for Christ's sake. A family member dies, and you insult me. What the hell is the matter with you, anyway? Uh, 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 well, uh, you, I, I, I really don't know, sir. I mean, I, I, I didn't think I was talking to you. I thought I was talking to somebody else. You know, sir, that I would never deliberately insult you like that. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how embarrassed I am. Pardon my French, but you're an asshole. What? Asshole! Uh, you're absolutely right, sir. You've hit the nail right in the head. Find out where she is. This isn't over yet, Buster. Do you read me? Uh, loud and clear, Mr. Peterson. Call me sir, God damn it! Yes, 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 sir, yes, sir. That's better. You just mind your P's and Q's, Buster, and remember who you're dealing with. Bueller. Ferris Bueller. No, I'm, I'm a little scared because what, what if he recognizes my voice? Possible. You're doing great. Oh, yeah. And just everything where, with, when uh, Rooney's, Rooney's whole like uh, school policy for dead bodies. Uh, uh, Ed, I'm, I'm sorry. Did, did you say you wanted to see a body? Yeah, that's right. Just uh, roll her old bones on over here and I'll dig up your daughter. You know that school <laughs> policy. Oh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, all the stuff that basically the first 25 minutes of this movie is yearbook quotes. It's just yeah. straight, absolutely like seared in your memory. All the stuff about not that I condone fascism or anyism. I do have a test today. That wasn't bullshit. It's on European socialism. I mean, really, what's the point? I'm not European. I don't plan on being European. So who gives a crap if they're socialists? They could be fascist anarchists. It still wouldn't change the fact that I don't own a car. It's not that I can go to fascism. Or any ism, for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. It's just every fucking line is, in, is, is indelible. He's, so, he's wound so tight, you could put coal in his butt, that whole thing, come out as yeah. a diamond two weeks later. I think probably the one non-Ferris or Rooney line that I'll remember the most is uh, is Grace going, he's very popular, Ed, the Sportos, the Motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wastoids, dweebies, dickheads, dickheads, they all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. That's that's pretty great. Could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? Mm. Well, it's not really a day off then, is it? Maybe his 10 cut days. Each episode yeah. is a different cut day. I, I hope that doesn't happen. Ten episode Netflix show set at the parking lot, kind of just just seeing what happens there over the course of the day when those guys take off. Maybe we could spend more time with Cameron's dad. You know, yeah. Cameron's him, dad's adventures at the car shop. 
I have him coming up right now. I'm probably going to answer both questions. Number one, why did Cameron's dad hate Cameron so much? Cameron seemed like a decent kid. We forgot about a, a related quote, which is, let my Cameron, Cameron go. go. Yeah. <laughs> when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. His dad's an asshole. That's my take. <laughs> is it the car was asking for it? <laughs> uh, did, uh, did Ferris become a software billionaire? Yeah, I was going to ask whether or not, like, could could Ferris really do this level of hacking on a dial-up line in 1985? Because he, it's a running joke about I asked for a car, I got a computer, and he's so pissed off about it. Um, but it would be funny if the sequel, twelve year, you know, fifteen years later, two thousand one, would have been Ferris Ferris becoming a billionaire because he cashed in in the software boom because he actually learned how to program. That's really good. Um, why did the Buellers, a nice family, Midwest, all American, why would they have such a mean dog? Who has a dog like that? You're in the middle of the fucking Midwest. You, you need, you they need have a pretty like, mean daughter too. So I don't know. <laughs> you need a dog that is like that vicious just around in case anyone's breaking in. Who's going to break in? You're in Illinois. Come on. Would uh, 1986 Cameron, if you fast forwarded him 30 years to 2016, would the internet have made him more or less normal? Oh, he would have written so many first person essays about his trauma. Oh my God. He would have had so many, so many pieces published about his relationship with his dad. Jesus Christ. Do you think Cameron's dirtbag left? Like he's 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 posting yeah. about Bernie all yeah. day. He's a co-host of Trapo of Chapo right now. <laughs> uh, and then the uh, the theory that Ferris is a figment in Cameron's mind. We don't believe that, right? I love the theory. It's obviously not the point, but it it works. Like you, yeah, you, it's you, a way you, of you reading could, the movie it. more than the theory. Yeah. Any other other unanswerable questions? Like I guess uh, we we've done this a couple of times with movies. We did it with Basic Instinct. But what do you think the the sort of legs for the the Sloan Ferris relationship is. Where do you think Ferris and Cam go to school, and then where, what do you think the the sort of Sloan Ferris relationship is? I mean, obviously, I don't think they get married. I think that that is actually purposely supposed to be a flight of fancy. But you figure Cam probably goes somewhere pretty good, like maybe Michigan, right? Gets back to his Detroit roots with the Gordy Howe jersey. Where do you think Ferris <laughs> can actually get in? Do you think he's manipulating his grades? Do you think he goes somewhere like? Kenyan, like where they like it's not as important, like Bard, you know, like where yeah, you think say he like goes. Hampton College or something like that. Yeah, where there's like a well, more of a hippie atmosphere. You give yourself your own grades. When what month of the year do we think this day was in? March think or April, 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 right? April, yeah, spring, yeah. He would have already gotten into college at that point because he was a senior. But he says, "I want to go to a good college." When he's waking up in the morning, he's like, "I got to go take my test because I want to go to a good college and become a good adult," right? I, the only explanation would be is if he was an 11th grader, but he says that one thing where he's like freshman and it makes it seem like no, he's, he's a, a senior because Sloan's a junior. Yeah. Yeah. So he should have already been in college. Maybe he got waitlisted. Maybe just University of Illinois. Yeah. So that he can come visit Sloan. I bet they date for the first semester he's in college and then he forgets all about her. You think he got to know Joel Hodson at the University of Illinois? <laughs> 
deep deep eighties movies joke for Chris. When are when, uh, are when are we doing that? Oh man, that movie. I mean, that's like the first modern eighties movie, basically. Tangerine Dream. We're talking about risky business for the listeners. Yeah. Here. Uh, all right. Who won the movie? Broderick. Uh, I want to say Cameron, but I think it's Hughes. I think this confirms Hughes, Hughes as the guy. This is like he he owns the eighties more than any other writer director. I go Hughes one, Broderick two, Cameron three. And I think it's close. I think that for the metal stand, it's about as good of a metal stand as we're going to have. But I'm I'm with Sean. I think when Hughes drops this on top of all the other stuff he's done, um, all in a row, and just as – I mean, I, I remember when I wrote about this in 09, the movie, just talking – because Hughes had just died, and it was one of those things where he died, and the reaction so far surpassed how much John Hughes dialogue there was from like 1992 to 2009. Cause he kept such a low profile um, and was, was so concerned about like his privacy and just keep take care of his family, all that stuff that there just wasn't a lot of John Hughes conversation. And then when he died, it was this outpouring of, Oh my God. And, and I remember adding it up and just like out of the 15 biggest eighties movies, I think he was involved in five. And yeah. then, just the ones that lived on culturally from a zeitgeist standpoint. And then home alone was, you know, probably the biggest kids movie of all time. It's certainly going to be the most watched one ever. I think you could make the case that since 1980, he is the director who more people have a serious relationship to his movies than any other person that has been making movies since then. And that includes the greatest directors of the last 40 years. His movies are the most seen, the most loved, the most repeated, the most identified with. They are, you know, for better or worse, kind of regardless of what you think about them, they are totemic for people. They're so important. And I I, I think that this is the one where people said, okay, this is the guy. This is the guy for his time. Yeah, I just think that it's one of those things where you look at like a graph chart. Like if you look at it like a chart, this is just two people finding each other at the exact right time. Because like... Broderick never does anything this magnetic and this charismatic and this electric again. And in some ways, I thought he was just the perfect avatar for Hughes' stuff. I know he worked a lot, obviously, with Molly Ringwald. And he's he's got a bunch of, like, real-life kind of totems that he he returns to. But it's hard. It's like, is it what Ferris Bueller is saying or is it the way he's saying it? And it's, to me, it's just like those opening 30 minutes or so of what Broderick's doing. And this is just, like, some of the most charming shit I've ever seen. Love John Hughes. He, the greatest thing about him, other than all the movies he made, was I don't know who his rival was. It's one, one of those guys where, especially with great directors, they always had somebody on their corner or there's a little back and forth or at least one other person trying to be in the same lane in some sort of real way. And in his case, it was just him. And everybody who tried to make a John Hughes movie pretty much bombed. Or or did like the much shittier version of it, and he was the only one who kind of figured out the the recipe. So, this is a classic. We should mention it's on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, hop on over there. Ferris Bueller's waiting for you. Uh, Sean Fantasy, Chris Ryan, pleasure as always. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Bill. All right, thanks to State Farm and thanks to Sonos. Remember, every Sonos speaker designed from the inside out for incredibly detailed sound and deep bass. 
then fine-tuned by Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists. True Play puts the speaker tuning capability of the recording pros in the palm of your hands. Plug your speaker and open the app. Connect all your favorite streaming services. Connect your TV or even a turntable and listen to everything you love. Go to Sonos.com to learn more. Back with one more rewatchables later in the week. Until then. You're still here? It's over. Go home.